Let's be taking our Bibles now at this time to Matthew chapter 14. Turn with me, if you will, to Matthew chapter 14. And as you're turning there, I want to just take a moment to say thank you to our church family here at Grace for rising to the occasion. There was lots of opportunity for ministry this week um, with the passing of Linda Lloyd. And on Wednesday night, we expressed the needs there. And I just want to say thank you, church family, for all the things that you did, both known, and many of you did things unknown. You don't do it for the eyes of men, you do it for the eyes of the Lord alone. And that's what true ministry is, is when we do what we do out of love for the church, but ultimately for the greater glory of God. Thank you to everyone who provided uh, food for the family, for the Lloyd family, uh, before the funeral. Thank you for those who participated in arranging and decorating and uh, cleaning and preparing the buildings before the funeral, after the funeral. Uh, thank you just from beginning to end to everyone who served in the nursery. There was a whole crew that wound up being back there, and we had a feeling that might happen, and ladies, y'all stepped into the gap. We just want to say thank you for showing the love of Christ in all those practical ways. In fact, that's what the New Testament teaches is what true fellowship is, and oftentimes we certainly eat here at Grace. We'll be having a fifth Sunday of fellowship in just a few days, but fellowship is more than eating. It includes that. But the type of fellowship that the New Testament church experienced is the fellowship, the koinonia of serving, serving together, delighting in our risen Christ. And church family, you did a great job displaying that and showing that. And we want to say thank you. Thank you to the worship team who uh, jumped and practiced and prepared uh, to serve in that way on Sunday. Thank you to Pat and Angie Lett and others who, who served in the, the balcony doing the slides, the sound, all of those things. I'm almost hesitant to go on and on because I always know when I try to say thank you in these particular ways, you're going to miss out people and you're bound to offend somebody. So just know from the heart of your pastor, we are grateful for you. Church family, thank you for how you showed the love of Christ uh, in the last few days and how you continue to do that. We turn now this morning to Matthew chapter 14, and we have before us this morning a most unusual text. In fact, it's a text that reminds us of why we preach expositionally. If you are just walking into an average church and our pattern was not to preach uh, expositionally, there's no telling what you might hear. The, it would be led by my whims, whatever I felt like uh, you know, I wanted to preach on topically on this day. But when you commit to, to preaching verse by verse, uh, you don't skip over things. And you come face to face with truth and doctrine that is easy and delightful and others that are weird and sordid, but yet the inspired record God wants us to know it and to understand it, and not just to hear it in a Sunday school class as we're growing up in, as, as children, and that's the only time we ever hear it. So we come to the text today to see the account, Matthew chapter 14, verses 1 through 12, of the death of John the Baptist, and I am entitled today's message, A Tale of Two Kings. Now I changed that message title, and so just want to make sure you have that, A Tale of Two Kings, Matthew chapter 14. Let's read the text together. Let's get it in our, our mind, and then we'll walk through the text this morning. Matthew chapter 14, and the gospel writer says this, At that time, Herod the Tetrarch heard the report about Jesus. And he said to his servants, Well, this is John the Baptist. He is risen from the dead, and therefore these powers are at work in him. For Herod had laid hold of John and bound him and put him in prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife. Now take note of how the Holy Spirit leads Matthew to record this for us. Not his wife, but for the sake of, he puts John the Baptist in prison for the sake of Herodias' 
uh, his brother Philip's wife. Because John had said to him, verse 4, It is not lawful for you to have her. And although he wanted to put him to death, he feared the multitude, because they counted him as a prophet. But when Herod's birthday was celebrated, the daughter of Herodias, and record tells us Josephus gives us lots of background information here. Her name was Salome. When the daughter of Herodias, Salome, danced before them and pleased Herod, Therefore he promised with an oath to give her whatever she might ask of him. So she, having been prompted by her mother, said, Give me John the Baptist's head here on a platter, on a charger. Immediately, verse 9, the king was sorry. Nevertheless, because of the oaths and because of those who sat with him, he commanded it to be given to her. So he sent and had John beheaded in prison. And his head was brought on a platter and given to the girl, and she brought it to her mother. Then his disciples came and, and took away the body and buried it, and they went and told Jesus. We see here in our text, verse 9, that the king was sorry. Uh, there are many titles we could give, and I try not to spend a lot of time on, on sermon titles and spend more time in the text but there were just too many options for the sermon titles this week. Simply the death of John the Baptist, a tale of two kings, which I finally settled on. But quite frankly, we could have titled today's passage, The Sorry King. The Sorry King, based right out of there, verse 9. Now, our topic this morning is really of three men. And yet there is an ordinate focus and attention given to one man. The three men in our passage is Jesus, the Son of God, we see Herod Antipas, that gives him the distinction of which Herod we're talking about here, Herod, and then John the Baptist. Now turn back with me, if you will. Let's go back into Matthew's record just for a moment, back to Matthew chapter 11. And let's revisit, as we on board here, give some background context. The last time we heard of John the Baptist was in a moment of weakness. And I think we'll find today, as we see a more composite picture uh, not excusing doubt, but understanding with empathy John's plight where he was in. And we're not going to re-preach Matthew 11, but we need to revisit. Where did we last hear about? What's been going on with John the Baptist? Where has he been? What's he been doing? As we saw in the scripture reading this morning, in John chapter 1, John the Baptist was the forerunner of Christ. Matthew 3 details this as well. But his preaching ministry came to an abrupt end. And so the last time that we saw him, Matthew 11, we just simply understand that he's in jail. Look with me, Matthew 11, verse 1. Now it came to pass when Jesus finished commanding his 12 disciples that he departed from there to teach and to preach in their cities. And when John the Baptist, when John had heard in prison about the works of Christ, he sent two of his disciples and said to him, Are you the coming one or do we look for another? Jesus answered and said to them, Go and tell John the things which you hear and see. Tell him this, verse 5, that prophecies are being fulfilled. The blind see, the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear. The dead are raised up, and the poor have the gospel preached to them. And blessed is he who is not offended because of me. And then they continue to transition to the rest part of the text. Now, interestingly enough, do you remember that word offended? Do you notice that word offended? Jesus says, blessed are they 
who are not offended at me, my ministry, my preaching. Well, last week, coming back over to Matthew 14, last week we saw that as Jesus came to his hometown of Nazareth, they were offended at him. Jesus here previously says, blessed are those who are not offended at me. And here's the idea. You can almost give a, a comparison of the leaders, the re religious leaders, and Jesus' friends and neighbors from his hometown that we saw in Matthew 13 last week, verses 53 through 58. They were offended at him. He was a stumbling block for them. And John the Baptist was wavering at this moment in his ministry. But friends, he, he came around. He was rooted in Christ. His faith was strengthened as he heard that the prophecies being fulfilled that Jesus is who he says he is. As we come back to Matthew chapter 14, we find a fuller version of this biography of John. And it also it tells us what is taking place in this changing narrative of the life and ministry of Jesus. Here in Matthew 14, one commentator says this, This true account is more incredible than the most bizarre of modern day soap operas. It is a story of infidelity, divorce, remarriage, incest, politi political intrigue, jealousy, spite, revenge, lewdness, lust, cold-heartedness, cold cruelty, brutality, violence, ungodly remorse, and godly mourning. And what we find here in Matthew chapter 14 is that John the Baptist, the forerunner of Christ, is in jail because he has been faithful to the ministry that was entrusted to him. And friends, as we'll see here and throughout the text this morning, I just want to remind all of us that if you are faithful to the call of being a disciple, Jesus' call to every man, woman, and child is come, take up your cross, deny yourself, follow me. Follow me, rest in me, trust in me. That means to turn from your sin, turn away from all that is wicked and ungodly and vile and a part of your natural state. Follow me. And to every person who does that, friends, listen to me. If you do it faithfully, more than likely, there will be a cost for you. Count the cost. Church, count the cost the cost. Friends, count the cost. And when your moment comes to stand firm in the face of vileness, in the face of wickedness, or in the face of a test that God providentially allows to come your way, friends, be faithful to the truth. And what we find here is that death is coming for all of us. Death is coming for us. And death is one of the most mysterious events that happens to us because we all know that we're going to die. The thing that we don't know is, is friends, listen, how we're going to die. Many of us, by God's common grace, just good grace, will die peacefully. We'll live a full life. We'll live for our Savior and our King. But the day will come where God calls us home. It may be in our sleep. It, be, it may be naturally. It may be whatever. For others, it may be tragically. A pastoral hero of mine, Dr. Harry Reeder of Briarwood Presbyterian Church, just a few weeks ago, went home to be with the Lord because he died tragically in an accident. He was leaving the state capitol in Montgomery, heading back to Birmingham to his church, and he plowed right into the back of a, a huge semi. He was killed instantly. My point is simply this. It doesn't matter who you are. God's servant, 
more officially a preacher or a prophet type of thing that we see here with John the Baptist, or just a faithful follower, Christian of Jesus. Death is coming for us all. And not even for John the Baptist did he know how he was going to die. Hebrews 9.27 reminds us that it is appointed unto man once to die, and after this, the judgment. The psalmist praises Yahweh in Psalm 31.15, and he says, My times are in your hand, O God. Deliver me, notice here, from the hand of my enemies and from those who persecute me. There's no doubt John the Baptist being a preacher of righteousness who knew the Old Testament scriptures, knew this passage, prayed this passage, Psalm 31.5, God, my times are in your hands. Have mercy upon me. Deliver me from the hands of my enemies. Deliver me from Herod Antipas. Deliver me from those who desire to persecute me. But friends, even if not, we will not bow. Now, when a preacher preaches like this, people who are shallow or carnal tend to think he's trying to be fantastic. And friends, I just want to assure you, there may be times I'm trying to be fantastic, not intentionally. I always want to be faithful to the text. But this is the text this morning. This is the text. And determine that you will not bow. You will be faithful to Christ. You will be faithful to the gospel to the end of your days. So what is taking place here? Well, notice in verse 1, the opening phrase of Matthew 14 is at that time. And what Matthew's recording for us is that at that time connects back to just the previous message from last week. They have rejected the Son of God. Now, verse 58 of Matthew 13, Now Jesus did not do many mighty works there because of their unbelief. His hometown, his family, his people, he left there. Cease doing works and miracles. Now, it was at that time, and we come into Matthew 14, that Jesus begins to hear, we begin to understand the fuller context of what is taking place with John the Baptist. This is in the sphere of Jesus' ministry where one commentator titles it, Jesus is, is the rejected king. In fact, in the parable of the souls, if you remember, it was described for us that when the gospel seed goes out, that In some hearts, the seed hits the hard ground, and it does not break through. And Matthew 14 is an illustration of Herod Antipas and others who have heard the gospel. They've heard the ministry of Jesus, and yet that seed is not penetrating their hardened hearts. John 1.11 says, He came into his own, and his own received him not. So we here see that Jesus is rejected. And not only is Jesus rejected, this is what is now taking place. As Jesus turns from the Jews, and in Matthew 14 and 15, we're going to see that he turns exclusively his attention to the Gentiles. He begins to move more in a focus of the Gentiles. But not only is Jesus rejected, but his messenger is rejected and ultimately killed here as well. As we walk through Matthew 14, we'll frame our thoughts around this outline. Number one, Herod's character. Number two, Herod's confusion. Number three, Herod's conscience. And then number four, Herod's crime. Number one, Herod's character. Number two, Herod's confusion. Number three, Herod's conscience. And then number four, Herod's crime. First of all, notice with me in verse one, Herod's character. He's introduced to us. 
Who is this man? Which, which Herod is this? Verse 1, at the time, Herod the Tetrarch heard the reports about Jesus. This is one of many Herods in the New Testament. Specifically, this is Herod Antipas. He was the son of Herod the Great by Herod's fourth wife, a Samaritan. And I only say that as there's tons of background information here about Herod Antipas, Herod the Great. And the honest truth is, in all of my reading and studying, it is so convoluted and so complicated that I just kind of summarized everything to simply to say this. And we'll get to that as we get into the text. But Herod Antipas married his brother's wife. And we'll get into that, which was actually his niece. This family is full of adultery, immorality, incest. It honestly is so convoluted and gross that it's hard to truly, factually keep track of it all. This is Herod the Tetrarch. The Tetrarch simply means he's one of four lesser rulers ruling underneath Herod the Great, covering a sphere, covering a, a, a territory. And he happened to be covering the territory of, of where Jesus and his ministry was. The Jews particularly despised Herod Antipas because he was a, a Gentile descendant from Esau. And he had also married a Samaritan, and he was the son of a Samaritan. So when we understand that cultural background, we can understand why he's a hated man, why the Jews do not care for him, for, for many reasons. When he married his brother's wife, he immediately created enemies who began to attack him. His former wife's father was a leader. And so Herod then builds a citadel on top of a graveyard. Talk about unclean. And he builds a citadel on top of a hill, on top of a mountain, so that he is ultimately away from the people, protected, and the majority of his information comes to him through second hand. He's a fearful man. He's a fearful king. Herod Antipas is known for his being weak and, quite frankly, stupid. He's known for being extremely violent and cruel. He's known as a sexual pervert. And one thing we can take away as we introduce Herod Antipas is simply this. Weak men, number one, but weak kings or weak rulers are dangerous men. Dangerous in this way, in that no one around them is safe. Weak men are dangerous men or weak kings are dangerous men. History reveals that at one point, Herod Antipas had a whole Sanhedrin court executed because they challenged his authority. Uh, multiple records describe how he killed previous wives. He married more wives than you could shake a stick at. He, he killed previous wives and even two of his sons so that they would not overthrow him. He was fearful of being, of being overthrown. He also ordered the Herod who ordered the deaths of all the baby boys of Bethlehem in an attempt to kill Jesus when he was a child. This king is a fearful king. He's a weak king. He's an evil king. In fact, Herod, if we could summarize him in one word, is simply this. His besetting sin was fear. The problem was is his fear was in the wrong thing. In fact, Proverbs 29, 25 tells us and instructs us that the fear of man brings a trap. It is a snare, like an animal that is, that is caught into a trap and cannot escape. It begins to be something that is painful and hurt, hurtful, and he lives within this trap, and he cannot escape this trap. The fear of man brings a snare, but whoever trusts in the Lord is safe. 
Friends, John the Baptist here is safe even though he's in prison. John the Baptist is in the most secure and practical, warm place he could be within the will of God. And here we have Herod the king ruling in his palace, and yet he is absolutely a prisoner to fear. Better to be a prisoner in the will of God than to be outside the will of God and to be absolutely enslaved by our besetting sins and unbelief. Church family, this is a, a helpful reminder to us, and it's simply this. The fear of God, the fear of Yahweh, removes all lesser fears. John the Baptist here shines for us in that he fears one and one alone. In fact, turn back with me to Matthew chapter, um, Matthew chapter 10, just briefly, Matthew 10, 27. And let's hear the teaching of Christ as he teaches his disciples. And he reminds them who to fear. He's instructing his disciples and he has told them, he's sending them out to be like lambs among wolves. And he tells them that they will be hated, verse 22 of Matthew chapter 10, and you will be hated by all for my name's sake. But he who endures to the end will be saved. When they persecute you in this city, flee to another. For surely I say to you, you will not have gone through the cities of Israel before the Son of Man comes. Verse 24, a disciple is not above his master. Friends, do you look to the life and crucifixion, death, burial, and resurrection of Christ, the holiest man who ever lived, and think that you will escape some type of trial or persecution in this life if you're faithful to the truth? Friend, you're not fit to be a disciple of the kingdom. I'm not saying that. That's the record of Scripture. A disciple is not above his master. And I say that only to say this. I'm prophetically speaking in a pastoral sense to our culture. We have an evasion of all things persecution. In fact, the greatest God in our land is simply this, comfort. Comfort. But I'm getting off track there. And Jesus says, verse 24, a disciple is, is not above his teacher, nor a servant above his master. Now, verse, verse 28, do not fear those who, who kill the body. Do not fear Herod. Do not fear Caesar. Do not fear Pilate. Do not fear the Sanhedrin. Do not fear your brothers and sisters. Do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. But rather fear him who is able to destroy both body and soul into hell. Friends, I want you to know something. From the day that Herod Antipas died, tell the two kings, he has been burning in torment and in hell from that day till now. I don't say that delightfully. I don't say that cheerfully. I say that factually. And from the day that John the Baptist had his head beheaded, he's been in glory. And if you were to interview both men here today and say, was it worth it, Herod? No, it wasn't worth it. John the Baptist, was it worth it? Yes, it was worth it. Friends, choose this day. In the language of Joshua, choose you this day whom you will serve. Who are you fearing? Do you fear God, your creator, who has power over body and soul? Or do you fear your wife? Or do you fear your husband? Or do you fear your son? Or do you fear your daughter? Because that's what we see here in the text. We see a man who fears his wife. We see a man who, who fears his daughter. We see a man who fears the, the thoughts of his friends. We just see a man who's enslaved to fear. And he's a dangerous man because of it. Choose this day whom you will fear. The fear of God removes all lesser fears. 
Do not think that if you reject God and you're an atheist that, that you're unaccountable. In fact, we pity you because you are a slave to everything that moves. Whether it be COVID, whether it be financial collapse, you're in fear of everything. You're in fear of cancer. You're in fear, in fear of death. Friend, root it down this day whom you will fear and fear your creator, God, who loves you and has sent his son and died for you and provides salvation for you. Proverbs 14, 26, in the fear of the Lord, John the Baptist, in the fear of the Lord is a strong confidence. Now notice here, and his children shall have a place of refuge. Men, I'm going to speak to you for a second. Do you fear the Lord? And if you do fear the Lord, know this, a byproduct of that is where strong men provide a shelter for their family, a place of refuge, a place of refuge, a place of safety. We see two men, one who is weak and unprincipled, no character, but yet is in fear of everything that moves. And we see another man who simply fears the Lord. And that fear of the Lord gives a strong confidence and humility. And that fear of the Lord and strong confidence leads to this, those who follow after him have a place of refuge. Here we have Herod introduced to us, and he's a sleazeball. He's a pervert. He is a filthy, fearful king. Number one, Herod's character. Secondly, Herod's confusion. We mentioned just a moment ago, you fear everything that, that moves. Herod Antipas has a guilty conscience. And before we jump into the text, I'm just going to give you another principle. Friends, live in such a way that you fear no man. And what I mean by this, you don't have a guilty conscience. Life is long. Life is full. But live your life led of the Spirit, rooted in the gospel in such a way where when you need to repent, you can repent. Because your identity is not in your moral righteousness. Your identity is not in your works. Your identity is rooted in Christ and Christ alone. Be a man who lives in such a way that you can look people in the eye, you can have conversations expected and unexpected, and run from no one. John the Baptist is such a man. Herod the Tetrarch is not such a man. He's a fearful king, and it leads to his confusion. He sees ghosts. Uh, metaphorically, he sees visions. He sees those that he's harmed and hurt literally everywhere he turns. Verses 1 and 2, at that time, Herod the Tetrarch heard the report about Jesus and said to his servants, this is John the Baptist. He's risen from the dead. And therefore, these powers are at work in him. So what we have here is the fact is that John the Baptist is already dead. Let's so move into verses 3 through 12. It's like a literary flashback that explains Herod's confusion here. Jesus, is, of course, as we've been studying week after week, has been busy. He's been faithful. The fame of Jesus has spread throughout all the regions. His teaching and preaching is with authority. We saw last week that is why they were offended at him. But the fame of Jesus, his miracles, and his teaching and preaching has, has spread. And as inoculated as Herod Antipas has been, not even Jesus' fame can be kept from, from him. He knows little of Jesus. But who he does know about is Jesus' messenger. And he says, this is John the Baptist. He's come back from the dead. Thirdly, we see not only his character, his confusion, but we see here in verse 2, his conscience is at play. God gives those who are made in his image a conscience. And that conscience can be informed and it can be misinformed. 
And here we see that Herod's conscience is his worst enemy against him. He's safe in his palace. He's walking around at night. In fact, you got to be careful reading about these Roman leaders. But many, of it, many aspects of it is interesting and fascinating as you think about the application of the scriptures. But many of these men were so vile and so perverted, they could not sleep because to sleep, their horrors would come back to them. Caligula and all the rest who persecuted the Christians were so demented that they could not close their eyes and were known as those who just walked around the halls and their palaces at night because they were being tormented in their souls and in their spirits. By the way, Herod Antipas was a friend of Caligula. Maybe that name Caligula, don't look too, don't look too hard into him. But an absolutely horrible, horrible man. They were friends. Here we see Herod's conscience absolutely working against him as God designed it to do. Friends, when we sin against the law of God, when we sin against the truth of God, God gives us a conscience. It's inbuilt into our, our person and our soul. It, it's where the truth that has been revealed to us up until that point begins to work. It begins to speak. It begins to work against us or to bring us, if you will, to a place of repentance. But I just want to remind us this morning, this is not a sermon on the conscience, but I want to remind us that our conscience can be seared. A conscience can be something that is so gone against, no, I will do what I want to do. And our conscience speaks to the wickedness of it, the evil of it, the immorality of it, and every time it comes up within, we just squelch it, we stiff arm, we, we put it down. And your conscience is a mechanism that can stop working. It, it, it is a part of the natural common grace of God that God gives to every man, but that conscience can be misinformed, filled with wrong truth, to where people begin to believe a lie. It can also be, be seared. Here we see Herod's conscience, uh, conscience working effectively in this sense that it is speaking to him. He said to his servants, this is John the Baptist. He's risen from the dead, and therefore these powers are at work in him. So what we see here is, here his conscience is defiled. He is a superstitious man. He is a guilt-ridden man. He's a mess. And friends, can we just be honest? Many people that you talk to in your life are superstitious. They're a mess. They are guilt-ridden. And I don't say that condemningly. I just say that to wake up the church. And you are rubbing shoulders every day with Herod. And I don't mean Herod in his worst part. I mean Herod is de described here in his conscience. Guilt. Superstitious. You know what I'm talking about. People ascribe things to all kinds. And you're just like, what are you, what are you talking about? And you're just checking out at the gas station. And you hear them just running their mouth. And you're thinking, wow, that was interesting. Friends, these are opportunities for the gospel. As we make application to the church and as being disciples of Christ, may the Lord give us inroads to take people's superstitions and their guilt and just the mess of life and to counsel them back to Christ, to point them to Christ. Luke chapter 9 verse 7 tells us that Herod is confused and perplexed to the point of being paralyzed. So as he hears about the mighty works of Jesus, he's seeing visions of John around every corner. And now he hears about Jesus and he sees and believes that John has come again from the dead. In fact, 
So many Proverbs speak to this, but Proverbs chapter 28, verse 1, the Bible says, The wicked flee when no man pursues. The guilty conscience is another way of saying that. The conscience that is flawed, the conscience that is weighed heavy with guilt. You completely ruin that man's life, and, and you know it. Yet no one knows it, but you know it, and he knows it. You, you took that money when no one saw, and that man needed that at a, to pay a bill, and you came across it, and <laughs> finders, keepers, losers, weepers. And your conscience knows it, and your conscience convicts you. Your conscience speaks to you. And you are jittery. You are jumpy. The wicked flee when no man pursues. That is, that is Herod Antipas. And friends, it is also us when we are in unconfessed sin. Now, I want to be careful here about how we make that application, but we see the effects of a flawed conscience at work in us. Even as God's children, when we are living in unconfessed sin, look no further than King David and his year of unconfessed sin with his sin with Bathsheba. Herod's character, Herod's confusion, Herod's conscience, and then number four, we'll spend the rest of our time here, Herod's crime. And what is that? Look with me, verse three. For Herod had laid hold of John, and bound him. Well, why did he do that? And he put him in prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife. Because John had said to him, number one, it, it is not lawful for you to have her. And although he wanted to put him to death, he feared the multitude because they counted him as a prophet. But when Herod's birthday was celebrated, the daughter of Herodias danced before them and pleased Herod. Therefore, he promised with an oath to give her whatever she might ask. So she, having been prompted by her mother, said, Give me John the Baptist's head here on a charger. Now the king, verse 9, the king was sorry. Nevertheless, because of the oaths and because of those who sat with him, he commanded it to be given to her. So he sent and he had John beheaded in prison. Coming back to John the Baptist now, John the Baptist was a preacher of righteousness. When you look in Hebrews chapter 11, we're not going to turn there for sake of time, but Hebrews chapter 11 begins to walk through what is known as kind of the testimony of faith. Walking through Old Testament uh, prophets, men and women, who were faithful, who were converted by looking to the promises of God, looking ahead to the future, to the promises of God. And a summary, a summary description is given, and it says it like this, quoting from my memory here, those who walked in deserts, who lived in caves, those who wore, she who wore animal skins, describing the ministry of even John the Baptist. And John the Baptist was a preacher of righteousness, and Hebrews 11 describes him as one of those men and women of whom the world is not, was not worthy according to the record of Scripture. John the Baptist was the forerunner of the Messiah, and his message was straightforward. Matthew chapter 3, he sees religious people, people coming in a false way. The Holy Spirit gives him understanding, illumination, and as he preaches to them, he asks many of them, he says, why are you coming? And if you're coming to repent, then bear fruit that is in keeping with your repentance. In other words, there were fake disciples who were coming and saying, well, well, we're disciples of John. The problem was it was fake. It wasn't true. They were, they were professing words that had no power, that had no change of life. 
And John gives them the instructions, the command to show the fruits of repentance. That's straightforward preaching, isn't it? In fact, if you go back and look at Matthew chapter 3, you can understand why John's preaching outside. Nobody's going to invite him to fill their pulpit. He would wreck the synagogue. John the Baptist, when he would go somewhere, if he went, if he went, he only went once. They were never going to invite him back. In fact, his message was straightforward. And the Holy Spirit of God began to turn his radar in his street preaching to the known scandal of the day. It was the fact that Herod Antipas divorced and abandoned his lawful wife and left and took his brother's wife as not his lawful wife, creating and committing incest and adultery and so many other things. And John the Baptist begins to turn his sights and begins to preach upon the wickedness of the king of the day. Mark chapter 6, verse 18, For John said unto Herod, It is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. Look in our text here, Matthew 14, verse 4. Notice how the text says, Because John had said to him. In the Greek, that's literally rendered like this. He kept on saying. Verse 4, Because John kept on saying to him. In other words, you can say it like this. Welcome today to the sermon. Today's sermon title is Herod Cannot Have His Brother's Wife. Then the next week, I'm so glad you came today. Today I'm going to be preaching on it is unlawful for Herod to have his brother's wife. You get the idea. He is preaching. He is pointed. He is bold. He is direct. As you can imagine, as often is the case throughout history and even in our own country, those who are often the loudest disappear. We don't know why they disappear, but they disappear. And there are conclusions that can be made and theories that can be given. And that's exactly what happens to John the Baptist. He is made to disappear. Shut him up. Just shut him up. Now, I want to speak a word here. And the word here is simply this. If we are to listen to the, 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 the brokers, the power brokers of modern-day Christianity, there is one word that we're told that we need to be as Christians. And I want you to be thinking just for a second, all right? I'm sure many of you know what this word is. If you read generic Christian blogs, if you read many of the mainline popular uh, things that come our way, I'm sure you do, the Gospel Coalition. We could just, just go on and on. There is one word that stands out that Christians are told that we are to be, we must be this, if we want to be effective today. And I'll just be honest with you, early on in my ministry in 2011, when I began my, my ministry formally, I was not as grounded, and I'm not trying to praise myself in this sense, uh, but I was trying to be, I was reading all that, and I was trying to be, here's our word, winsome. Winsome. We are told today, if you want to be effective for the gospel, you've got to be winsome, church. If you want to win the lost, you've got to be, you've got to be winsome. Winsomeness at, at all costs. And here's the reason why. Our, our culture loves winsomeness. And mainline Christianity is cowardly, in my opinion. I don't say that flippantly. Those who are the power brokers of blogs and mainline Christian books are constantly telling the church to take the sharp edges of our truth and to just sharpen them down to where they're nice and just one big circle. And we can ultimately, that, that, that sharp edge of the square is now so rounded, it's just one big circle. And we love people as they are in their sin. There is no truth coming to bear on the conscience. Are you with me, church? Do you understand what I'm saying? If, if you know what I'm talking about, this is the truth. 
if there is a silencing of the truth, be nice. Now let's just, let's just review for a second. Back in Matthew chapter 13, verses 53 through 58, they were offended at him because of his straightforward, authoritative preaching and at his gracious words. I don't know where we get this misnomer that it is unkind to speak the truth and it's loving to affirm people in their sin. Friends, I'll just tell you this right now. You are no friend to your friend if you love and affirm them in sin that God will judge them for in the day of judgment. In fact, you are the best friend to those friends who are in your life when you come alongside them as iron sharpens iron. So does a man sharpen the countenance of his friend and you love them to the truth and they love you to the truth. And it's a strengthening, sharpening relationship. I'm getting off track here. Here's the point. John's not winsome. And he didn't read that blog. But what John is, is he's a forerunner of the Christ. What John is, is led of the Spirit. What John is, is the preacher of righteousness. And what John is, is bold and courageous. And what John is, is he fears no man. And what John is, is he preaches against sin. He preaches the righteousness of God. He preaches the coming judgment of God. All because he loves those who hear him. He loves them. Friends, it is not loving to lie, and the supreme demonstration of love is to tell the truth. We, we live in a culture today that's losing its mind. The emperor has no clothes on, and yet we're not supposed to say a word about it. What, what was Herod's crime? Well, when, what we see here in our text is that he, he took his brother's wife. It was incestuous. She was actually his his niece, it was adulterous. Everything about it was wrong, and no way could this union be blessed. And John boldly proclaimed that Herod was under the same laws of God just as everyone else was. Friends, we're all reminded that there's a coming day. The, the, the judgment of God, the great white throne judgment, where we will come face to face before a living God. Hebrews tells us it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of a living, of the living and holy God. When Herod heard the truth of John the Baptist, he wanted nothing to do with the truth of God. In fact, Luke chapter 3, verse 19, parallel passage says this, Herod the Tetrarch being rebuked by John concerning Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, for all the evils which Herod had done, also added this above all, that he shut up John in the prison. So this was his crime. When confronted, he simply faulted the messenger. When confronted with his sin, what was Herod's crime? When the truth was brought to bear upon him, he imprisoned the messenger. Friends, I'm going to tell you again, as I said a moment ago, the best friends you have in your life are those who love you enough to speak the truth to you. Treasure those friends value those friends. And friends, I will tell you this, this is a part of the role of the church, our brothers and sisters in Christ, loving and shepherding one another. It's not just, it's que sera, sera, you do you, and as you begin to grow cold or, or lukewarm, or if you begin to go into sin, you've got brothers and sisters in Christ who come alongside you and pray for you and shepherd you and speak truth to you. Don't shoot the messenger when confronted with your sin. Another aspect of Herod's crime is simply this. When he was confronted, he feared the people. What people? 
Well, he feared the nation. He feared the people around him. He was afraid that if he killed John the Baptist, that, that there would be an uprising. He was popular. He was considered a prophet. His preaching was powerful. He had disciples. He began to fear the people. He, he was fearful of his, of his brother's wife for Herodias' sake. John the Baptist's incessant, continual preaching against the sin infuriated Herodias. Instead of repenting, she's planning the day that she can assassinate and kill John the Baptist. Proverbs chapter 19 verse 13 says this, The contentions of a wife are like a continual steady dripping. There's no doubt that in this castle, Herodias is daily fuming. Her contentions are dripping. She's pouring out her wrath on, on her husband. Proverbs 27, 15. A continual dripping on a very rainy day and a contentious woman are alike. Whoever restrains her restrains the wind and grasps oil with his hands. But, verse 17, as iron sharpens iron, so a man sharpens the countenance of his friend. Verse that we've mentioned already this morning. Friends, listen. Herodias is a wife that is much within the tradition and the pattern of these infamous women in the scriptures like Jezebel. There are not women that you would name your daughters after. He feared the people. He feared his wife. He feared his stepdaughter. He feared his friends. And that shows us what happened. Notice there with me in verse 6 as we move quickly here. Verse 6 tells us that all of this took place. Ultimately, John the Baptist death when Herod's birthday party was celebrated. Verse 6, but when Herod's birthday was celebrated, the daughter of Herodias danced before them, and she pleased Herod. Because we have a mixed audience this morning, I will be careful about what I say here, but this is a perverted party. Josephus and many of the historians fill in the blanks for us, and it's not hard to imagine a group of men, drunk, lewd, Carnal, perverted, fleshly, what they're into. And this is what makes this sin even so sad and so serious. Instead of a mother and a stepfather protect, protecting their child, they prostitute the daughter to please men for the mother's perverted, distorted ends. Simply the death of a righteous man, John the Baptist. Weak men are a danger to everyone around them. Here we see Herod Antipas again and again had opportunity to stand up straight, to repent, and to do what's right. And this man has no discipline, no character. He is vile. Now, the idea here is, is that this word for daughter, some translations render it the girl. Later on, Matthew will say the girl. Mentions, the idea gives us an inclination to her age. She's very, very young, pre-teenage years. She danced and was trained to dance in such a way to it sexually pleased these men. And they were so stirred up, verse 7, therefore he promised with an oath to give her whatever she might ask. Mark chapter 6, verse 22 tells us that he was so mesmerized by the lustful, ungodly dancing that the girl delivered in front of him that he swore an oath that was not an oath for him to give. In fact, Mark 6, 22 tells us that he swore an oath to give up even half of his kingdom to this girl. It tells us the state of his condition. 
He spoke before he thought. He was loose with his words. And these are words that Herod would regret over and over again. Verse 9 tells us that he was sorry. And friends, I want you to know, there's a, you can be sorry, but that does not mean you are repentant. To be sorry of your sin, there are many men, Ben, I'm sure he's on security duty this morning, Jason, there are many men as we go to the jail that I have no doubt they're sorry for being there. We're not coming in with a spirit of judgment upon them, but there are actions and deeds that have been done, and they're sorry. But there's a difference in being sorry and truly repentant. Verse 9, Herod was sorry. He is the sorry king. Proverbs 29, 20 says, Do you see a man hasty in his words? There is more hope for a fool than him. Verse 8 tells us the rest of the story. She, being before instructed of her mother, said, Here, give me John the Baptist's head on a charger. It shows us the bitter scheming of Herodias as she's been planning to get her revenge upon this preacher of righteousness. Verse, verse 9, And the king was sorry, nevertheless, because of the oaths, because of those who sat with him, his, his rotten friends. What, what kind of friends do you have who are friends that will say, Well, I promised I would kill a man, so I guess I have to keep my promise. What kind of friends is that? No, whoa, hey, you don't have to do that for us. Well, that's, go put her away. That's sick. gross. That's sick. Send her out of here. No, you don't have to do that. It just speaks of the, the pervertedness of the whole group. It's interesting. The phrase slips my mind, but you read biographies of, of, of rulers. You think of Hitler. You think of Mussolini. They were all righteous in their own mind. Here we have a perverted ruler who all of a sudden finds some virtue, some righteousness. I've got to keep my promises. I am a man of my word. After all, he was sorry, nevertheless, because of the oaths, because of those who sat with him. He commanded it to be given to her. So he sent and had John beheaded in prison. And his head was brought on a platter and given to the girl, and she brought it to her mother. Then his disciples came and took the body and buried it and went and told Jesus. Friends, think about it like this. What courageous men these disciples were. To come, to go up into Herod's citadel on top of the mountain, knowing they may never come back again. To plead for the body of John the Baptist, much like Jesus' mother and his disciples took his body. They were courageous. They did what needed to be done. They did their duty. They did it because they loved John the Baptist, and yet they feared the Lord. What a text. And I'll be honest with you, not a text that I delighted in preparing this week. In other words, I'm not ashamed of God's word, but it wasn't like I got up and said, I cannot wait to preach this one. But friends, there's more truth here that applies to us than I think we could dare to imagine. And so as before we conclude this morning, I just want to give some points of, of application. And the first one is this. What's wrong in America today? What's wrong in the church? I'll tell you what's wrong. It begins right here. As Leonard Ravenhill of yesteryear used to say, the problem with preachers today is that no one wants to kill them anymore. I'm going to say that again. The problem with modern-day preachers today is that no one wants to kill them anymore. Now, that sounds weird. I know. It, it rings the ear and hits it unusually. The reason is, is our preachers today, our bloggers, our tweeters, our influencers, are far too consumed with their platform. They're far too consumed with being winsome and liked. They equate the measure of their success with how many people are in the pews as opposed to loving their eternal souls and preaching the truth of God's word and letting God take care of whatever he wants to take care of. The problem with preachers today is that no one 
wants to kill them anymore. Another point I want us to consider just for a moment is that secular culture does not fear disciples who are silent. Secular culture does not fear Christians, disciples who never speak in public. In fact, that's what we see what kills John the Baptist. Bold Christianity that calls out sin will never be cool and always comes with a cost. Bold Christianity that calls out sin will never be cool and accepted and will always come with a cost. And so church, I would just remind us here today, choose this day whom you're going to serve. Because at some point, a faith that you say you have will be tested. And your faith, if it cannot be tested and you keep silent and you're locked jaw, that's a faith that you can't trust to get you to heaven. A faith that cannot be tested is a faith that will not be, cannot be trusted. The Christianity, the faith that we say we've experienced in the new birth, at some point, if we seek to live faithfully to that truth, it will be tested. And may God give us courage and love and gracious words to speak and to stand and be ready in that moment because that's our moment. I remember a couple of years ago, I was listening to a, a news magazine on just audibly doing work and tasks, and they were reminding, they were saying that I think this past week, the early part of the week, was the anniversary of the, the, the boys in Thailand who were trapped in the underwater cave. And they were just kind of remembering that was a huge headline uh, story a few years ago. All these boys who were at risk of dying, trapped underwater, and they had to bring in, it took upwards to 10,000 people to make that rescue mission happen and to make it to where all those boys survived. And it caused me to remember, it was not in the story that I was listening to this past week, but back in the, when, when it happened, I remember, it just stuck in my mind, one of the rescue divers who was retired and had this skill and this expertise and his craft, they begin to do this bulletin call. If you, can, if you have this skill set, if you can do underwater diving in these particular conditions, please come to Thailand. And retired Marines and retired men of all types of skills and capacities came from all over the world, and they delivered. And one of the men that was being interviewed said this, I just can't help but think that God has prepared me my whole life for this moment. And I remember thinking, whoa, how powerful that is. And friends, I want you to know that I don't know who you are. I don't know what your career path has been, but I'll just say this. You may be in your early working years. You may be in college getting ready to go on a missions trip to the Dominican Republic, just graduated from high school, or you may be retired and you find you've got more time on your hands. I'll just say this. God is going to bring you opportunities that he's prepared you your whole life for right then. And may God help us to speak the truth in grace, in love, and not fail that moment. Friends, I want us to know this. We do not know how we die. We do not know how we will die. But fear God, trust Christ, be led and filled by his spirit. Two other points of application is simply this. True friends speak truth to their friends and their enemies. True friends speak truth to friends and their enemies. There are people in your life that, you know, we really don't have enemies. We, we, we act like we do. We don't have enemies. There's nobody that's going to kill me today because of what I'm doing right here. I don't have enemies. I don't, and you don't either. But you understand what I'm saying. There are people that we say that they're my enemy. Well, friend, be a true friend to them by speaking truth to them and maybe win them 
to be your friend. True friends speak truth to their friends and their enemies with the hope that they will become a friend. And then lastly, as I said, Herod was a weak man. And weak men are dangerous men, but not just weak men, but weak men who have spheres of authority. And there's no greater sphere of authority than fathers in our homes. May God help us to protect our wives. May God help us to protect our children. May God give us courage and backbone to do difficult things when life gets hard and we have to have wisdom when we walk through all of these things. Did you see, again and again after this text, wicked men doing wicked things, not standing strong when their moment came, and not bowing and bending the knee to the truth. Well, friends, I want to encourage us as we close this morning, as the disciples said in John chapter 20, verse 21, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Some of you need to repent here this morning. You need to repent because the, whole, the word of God and the arrow of the Holy Spirit has, has hit a, a spot in your life where you recognize not faithfulness, but unfaithfulness. Friends, I have good news for you. Turn to Christ. If we, 1 John 1, 9, if we confess our sin, he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If you've been hearing the preaching this morning and the Holy Spirit of God through the Word of God has shown you that you need a Savior, you're lost and on your way to hell. Again, if we were to somehow be able to bring to bear a witness, Herod Antipas here this morning, friends, it would be a message unlike any other. Look to Jesus. Hear the message of John the Baptist. Don't go to hell where he's been ever since. If we were to ask John the Baptist, John, man, you got, a, you got the short end of the straw. Would you do that again? What do you think he would say? Absolutely. It's worth it. Every bit of it. May God help us to look to Jesus and rest in him. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we, we do desire to see Jesus. And we thank you for servants who point us to Christ. And John the Baptist, as we heard his witness and his testimony, John 3, he said, I am not the Christ, but I've come to bear witness of the Christ. Father, we're not the Savior either. And our sole task as your disciples is to simply point others to you, to be faithful to the truth, to be bold, to be courageous. Father, would you make Grace Church a special place, a unique place where the fear of man is completely eradicated, where humanly it's inexplainable. And when people hear about the people of Grace Church, they say they love their God and they love people. They are full of the truth. Father, we thank you for the witness and the testimony that you've used Grace to have all the way up until this point. As we look towards the days to come, as you give us life and ministry and breath, we pray that that would continue to grow and expand. That the, the men in the prison, the people that celebrate recovery, the people in line at Kroger, the people at Shell Gas Station, our neighbors on our street, the people at the farmer's market on Saturday mornings, people at the Roan County High School gym, at the basketball league on Saturday mornings, just everywhere there's people they would hear and know of the testimony of Grace Church, that they fear God, they love the gospel, they love people, and that love is expressed through the articulation of the gospel. Father, it's in your precious name we pray. Amen.